Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning, so hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, a question from Veronica Explains. Like, the Veronica? With the YouTube channel with the Linux stuff, I should be in your channel asking you Q&A questions. But all right, awesome. I'm honored. Let's roll. Uh, so where does one get high-quality vintage console power supplies? Is there a good list somewhere on the internet? Well, there's two answers. The short answer is, yes, the triads have been vetted by some of the absolute nerdiest nerds in all of retro gaming to make sure that they're safe and consistent for use. I'll leave a link to the retro RGB page that has them. If you're outside of the US, you could certainly try to find them just based on part number, wherever your local distributor is. Uh, but yeah, the triads are awesome. Now, because it's you, Veronica, I'll explain a little bit more why, and also for my fellow nerds who also want to know the answer. So as far as like the best power supplies on the planet go, the triads are good. They're not the best, but they're consistently good every single time people have tested them. And they have all the proper CE ratings, and Castlemania gets them direct from Triad, I think Rondo Products now actually, and each one of the batches, or at least one or odd of them, is going to be retested to ensure that they're consistent. So the reason that we like triads, even though it's not the exact same type of power supply as the original, is because they're consistent, they're safe to use, and they work perfectly both on a scope when you're testing power signals, but also in real-world performance, which is matched by all of the video and audio testing. So plug in a triad, put in the Super Mario World blue screen, you're not going to get any ripple across the screen. Uh, same thing with MD Fourier testing, you fire up a Genesis with one of those, there is no change in the MD Fourier testing. And in fact, one would argue that they're sometimes better than the original when the originals are fading. So that's, that's definitely the recommendation. There are some other ways of going about powering modern consoles that um, if you do everything exactly right are fine, but if you have one piece in the chain fail or maybe be lower quality, then you could run into some serious issues. <clears throat> and one problem with power is you don't often get the problem right away. So maybe you see like an occasional ripple, but you think, oh, I don't know what that is. And then next thing you know, a month later, your console's dead. You didn't realize that you were feeding it bad power the whole time. And while that's not a huge problem, those power supplies that you get on Amazon or AliExpress or eBay for a dollar, those no-name rebrands, those are not ever one I would recommend. And you might very well hurt your consoles using those. So 
once again, the very short answer to your question, the triads are consistent. They're awesome. You can get one for basically every console out there. And if not, you could get an adapter to make it work with every console out there. So uh, yeah, I'll leave a link to everything here for anybody interested. And uh, please keep going on your channel. I, I watch a whole bunch of your videos. Next up, Brickfist noticed that my weekly videos, these Q&As and the weekly roundup, are uploaded at 60 frames per second. However, the me on camera shots appear to be 30 frames per second. So what's up with that? And how does that work in the timeline? Is each frame of the 30 frame per second me shot just doubled? Um, the second question is easy, so I'll answer that one first. Yeah, uh, when you put a 30 frame per second video in a 60 frame per second timeline, each frame is just played twice. So there should be no judder or weirdness. It's just doubled frames, so it should look normal. But the reason I shoot in 60 frame per second goes back to the very beginning of the weekly roundup and that I wanted to show gameplay footage whenever I was talking about it. So I wanted to shoot in 1080p 60 so that everything was in 60 frames per second. The gameplay footage, even if it was a 30 FPS game, whatever, I wanted to make sure everything was legit. And that way the me on camera shot would just match. I don't really think it mattered. I just wanted it to match. And I kept it that way over the years until I upgraded or downgraded, depending how you look at it, to this camera, the Kio Razer Pro. And what was happening is this camera, which I have right next to me all the time, my GH5, is how I was shooting all of my videos. And that includes the B-roll shots, any of the shots I take around the office, slash living room, slash guest room here, as well as the weeklies. So every single time I switched back and forth, I would have to take this silly rig, which if you saw my room tour video, it's a mic stand on top of a CD case. Um, I would have to undo all of that and reset it back up. Now, the GH5 just looks absolutely amazing, and I preferred using it that way, but that was a bunch of time wasted every week just setting it up and tearing it down. And the one thing I don't have extra of is time. So I wanted to do, I wanted to use a camera that looked sort of pro, but wasn't, you know, wasn't a huge step down. I wasn't going to go back to my old Logitech C90 or whatever that was, but I wanted to have it easy, just a single webcam style thing. So I watched all of Epos Fox's videos on all of the different modern webcams, and this one came close, and it does do 1080p 60, except the lens is ultra wide. So you'd see a bunch of crap on both sides that you just don't need at all. So I said, okay, I'll just crop it. When you crop that 1080p window, it looked terrible. It went back to webcam quality. So I'm actually shooting in 4K60 right now, and I'm just centering the window in a 1080p OBS window right now. So it looks like a 1080p30, but it's actually 480 or 4K30 centered to look like my other camera. And when I did it that way, it lined up absolutely perfect to what the 35 millimeter equivalent lens I have for this camera looked like. So it's the same shot. It's the same perspective. It's the same everything, except it's infinitely easier. And uh, uh, the only downside is it's 30 frame per second maximum. Now, I do have a second Sony camera that I was using, a small point-and-shoot that also does a bunch of cool things that I have on my other setup that's also a spare. And I was shooting with that during the week, which looked great, except the Sony app that you plug into your PC doesn't have full control like the GH5. So this Lumix GH5, when I plug this in, and I still use this for all the fancier videos, I think one I had to default back to this, but all I try to use this for all the 4K videos I shoot in, so my footage matches 4K 60 everywhere. 
Um, but when you plug this into your computer, you could put up, a, I think it's called Lumix Control, but you essentially have full control of the camera from your keyboard and mouse. So when I have the camera mounted away from me and I can't really mess with controls, I just sit here and do the focus, the white balance, um, the ISO, all of the different controls, and it's amazing. But when the, I hooked up the Sony camera, its app sucks. It does. It's supposed to be able to do all those things, but it doesn't really. If I'm doing it wrong, if you know of a better app, if there's a third-party app that can do that, please let me know, because I would switch back to the Sony and just keep this as a spare or whatever else. It's expensive to use as a spare. This was a $300 freaking webcam. Uh, but really, the only downside of the Kio is I can't do 1080p 60 the way I would like to. And I just figured, you all know what I look like. What's really important is what any of the examples that I show and in the Q and A's very often you just listen, there's really nothing to look at anyway. So that's the full explanation for all of this. It was probably way more info than you wanted. You probably just wanted a basic thing, but there's, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of creators listen to these as well. And even if you're an expert creator, that whole tip of switching to the Kio Razor Pro, I think that's what it's called, right? I'm reading the the name off of the side. Yeah, I think it's the Kio Razor Pro. That saved me so much time that it paid for itself within the first couple of months. And if you shoot in 30 frames per second, then it does everything that you might need. So I, I always want to share these things because even people who are smarter than me who have better rigs might go, you know, that's the perfect scenario or the solution for this scenario that I have. So I always want to dig into it. But yep, uh, keep the questions coming. And then uh, I always enjoy talking about my setup and stuff like that too. Next up, Shane Coolen has a question about linking some matrix switches together through an HD15 to SCART into a GSCART switch into a PVM, and then probably the second output of the GSCART would most likely also go into some kind of video processor, you know, like a retro tank or something like that. So this is going to be an interesting question because of what your sources might be. So let's, let's just say that your sources are component video an RGBS, the same signal that you would get through a SCART cable, or if you choose to use any of the custom cables that pump RGBS through a D-sub connector, that's fine with it as well. If that's your setup, then it's very easy. You just have everything going to the HD15 to SCART in RGBS mode, and then plug it into the G-SCART, and then don't flip any of the switches on at all on the G-SCART because of your target devices. Your target device, the 14M2U, uh, isn't going to take 480p, so you don't have to worry about sync on green from a PS2 or anything like that. And you're probably using component cables anyway. Uh, so that's it. You don't need to worry about sync regeneration or any of the other stuff that the G-SCART has. Just leave them all off. The only wrench in the mix would be as if you have a, an actual VGA console, RGB HV, such as a Dreamcast using the VGA cables, not a SCART cable. If that was the case, you would either need to get a second HD15 to SCART and always leave that in RGB HV mode and route that through, or you would, yeah, that, so, and that would convert RGB HV to RGBS. But if you leave it in RGB HV mode and you pump RGBS stuff through it, it might not work because of the way that the sync combiner is built onto it. So you could do that, or you could just reach in and flip the switch on the HD15 to SCART whenever you go back and forth. So the issue isn't, isn't the connector type. It's not that you're using a D-sub connector. It's really just RGBS versus RGBHV. 
This is so confusing that you just heard me pause for a second because I had to make sure I was visualizing it in my head. So what I would actually think about is, do you really need a G-SCART in that? And I'm not talking bad. I mean, I obviously love the G-SCART. I've been talking about it since day one. But if you have a couple of matrix switches like that, what would the purpose of the G-SCART be? Because you could just take the outputs of the matrix switches and run them you could run one into the other and then one output to your PVM, the other output to other devices. Do you need the GSCART in the mix? Um, and if so, then that should be either using the HD15 discart and flipping back and forth between inputs or input modes or just getting two and then just deciding which one you, you know, which you route through the matrix switch. Either of those would work. So, yeah, I know this is a bit confusing and I know this is kind of... Um, annoying to deal with when you're mixing so many different things together. But Shane's working on a really cool setup with a whole bunch of stuff and trying to automate everything. So this is the type of stuff that you're going to run into when you do things like that. So I try to always tell people to keep it as simple as possible. And if you're building a setup from scratch, doing something like getting all component cables and a couple of G comps might actually just be the easiest solution by far. And if you need to mix things in, maybe you just get one very large Extron crosspoint rather than a couple of ones. And that way you have like a 24 in and eight out or something. And that way you could have all of this stuff routed through. So, uh, or maybe that's exactly what Shane's going to end up doing. And the purpose of the GSCAR is to have the different outputs from the different matrix switches to do all these things, which is a very cool idea. So kind of a confusing one. I'm sorry if I lost a lot of people on this, but keep asking the questions if you have stuff like this, because the more we talk it out, the easier it's going to be to visualize and and kind of help people out who want to do things like that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next up, Mr. Bildo was recently gifted a Wii U and want to know what's the experience of playing original Wii games like? Will it output Wii games through the HDMI port? Is it using some kind of laggy software emulator or is it accurate to the original? And my opinion is probably going to annoy most people for different reasons. It's my opinion, you don't have to agree, that in this scenario, you've been gifted a Wii U, you want to check out the Wii and Wii U library, is this going to be good enough? And I would say absolutely yes, it is. You can get your Wii games out the HDMI port. It will not output 240p at all. So if you're trying to use the multi-out through a component to play original WiiWare games, I believe they're all going to come out 480i, so that wouldn't look right. But if you're outputting through the HDMI port, you're outputting at least 480p, probably 1080p anyway, so that's not an issue. And I think that is a perfectly fine experience. There are some shortcomings to it, but I wouldn't worry about that until you start playing and see what you think. If you get into the Wii library and you're like, you know what, this is now my favorite console of all time, I want an original, I want to do all the mods to it, then yeah, you're going to notice a difference. For me personally, the biggest difference, which so many people made fun of me for, but whenever I tried to load a Wii game on my Wii U, 
you first have to load your Wii U, which isn't the fastest booting console. Not the slowest either, but then you got to put in your disc and you launch it, and then it launches into VWE mode, which you have to wait. So you're basically booting two consoles. And it just annoyed me because I'm just sitting there staring at my screen waiting to start my stupid Wii game. A lot of people made fun of me for that. They're like, oh, you can't just wait another 30 seconds to play your game. And that's fair. They, they weren't wrong about that. But that, for me, was a much bigger annoyance than the not as good video quality, even though it's HDMI output, the way the games are scaled are a little weird in that. But I just, in your situation, I would absolutely just go for it and see what happens and make your decision after. If you were like, you know, it's a fun experience, but not really for me, totally cool. But that way, you don't have to spend any more money and all that other stuff. But if you love it, then you could jump into it. But this is not like, hey, I just found... um an original Genesis Mini, and I've never played Sega Genesis before, what do you think? I would probably say the same thing, just try it and see, but I would also have a list of things to to expect and reasons why you'll eventually probably want to switch to an original. I don't have that for this. It might be more than good enough for you, but all of the fans of the original Wii, please feel free to comment and explain to Mr. Bildo why you think I'm an idiot and that's a stupid move and you should only use original hardware. Uh, I, I'm all ears and I'm always trying to learn more about this stuff, but I just think in the context of that question, Wii U should be totally fine for checking out games in the Wii, original Wii library. Next up, Tom M. recently picked up original arcade boards for Mortal Kombat 2 and Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3. They've been trying to use a super gun to connect them to an LCD, but they keep getting video issues due to the weird refresh rate that Midway units used on those boards. They think a RetroTINK 4K would solve their issue. It would. Uh, however, they weren't able to get one pre-ordered, so they'll try again in January. But short of trying to track down a Wells Gardner arcade monitor, do I know of any way to get something like these working on a modern display? Anything else they could try? So the Tink 5X is not going to work with those boards. The OSSC probably will, but you're going to have to, or you might have to load up custom timings, and it might not work in all resolutions on your monitor. So the first thing I would do is put the OSSC in just generic mode and have it output 480p. See if your LCD would accept it then. I've had a lot more luck with displays that won't work at all with the OSSC unless it's in 480p mode. So I would definitely try that out first and see what happens. Then I would kind of hunt down any kind of custom timings for MK. I had meh timings. I think there's a page on the website. If there is, I'll link to it. But when I figured this out, it was with a bunch of friends who were working on it. The New York crew was kind of helping me with this. They did the real work and we got it to look good, but it wasn't something that I verified on a scope. There was a lot of gutches in there, but it definitely helped with compatibility. So I'll leave that page, but only with the disclaimer that uh, this is not the definitive OSSC profile for Midway boards. It's just what we got working. So for the short term, yes, I would try the OSSC in 480p. I would try OSSC with the timings I listed in 480p. If it still doesn't work, then your LCD is just not going to work with the boards. Uh, if it does, then bump up the resolution on the OSSC until it stops working, then drop it back down one. Other than that, RGB monitors should work. Um, regular consumer TVs with component video input. I had that JVC D-Series that worked perfect with my MK boards using the RGB to comp, the RetroTINK transcoder. So if you have just even a consumer TV with component video inputs, that should work. Um, CRTs are going to be a lot more forgiving than flat panels for this. But if you're strictly talking on a flat panel, 
the Tink 4K would definitely work. The OSSC might, using the disclaimers that I just put there, but maybe tracking down a local CRT might be easier, depending on where you are and what you have access to. So hopefully I was able to point you in somewhat of the right direction. Lily Larceny was just able to score two arcade machines. One is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles four-player cab with a good 25-inch CRT and power supply, and another is a non-functional Need for Speed underground arcade with the full driver's seat. And they were kind of wondering what to do with each. That's awesome. You're going to have a lot of fun with this. Um, I've always wanted to take an arcade machine, a driving arcade machine, and make it a multi-driving arcade machine, but in order to do that with original hardware, it would be an absolute nightmare and might not even work in most cases. People have certainly done it, but it's not easy. Doing something like getting Groovy Arcade through a PC MAME emulation and setting it up that way would be a lot easier. But what you probably might end up having to do is remove whatever steering wheel and steering controls were in that and putting like a... a PC USB based steering wheel and shifter and using that in its place, you're probably going to want to look at different arcade forums and good luck, by the way, because some of those are absolute cesspools, but some are also very good with some very amazing and helpful people on there. So you have to just wade through those and uh, figure out what other people were doing. But most of the time it's, it's pretty complicated and we're lucky enough to have very good software and hardware emulation solutions that'll make it a little easier. But maybe the driving wheel that's in the Need for Speed Underground Arcade is already some kind of USB-based driving wheel that you could just use like a controller. I don't know. You're going to have to kind of dig into that. But that's a project that you're probably going to be picking away at forever. But I think it's worth it. Because imagine a sit-down full driver's seat where you could play OutRun, Daytona, Need for Speed Underground, whatever else you got. That's very cool. Now, on the flip side, that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cab, somebody had converted that to Surf Planet with some terrible sticks and buttons in it, and Lily wants to eventually put either a Mars or Mister in it, and wants to, at the very least, update the control panel buttons. So I would go to any of the arcade shops. There's a couple of them in the U.S. that sell good quality parts, and I would just get uh, known good parts. If you like the concave buttons, you can get that style. If you're more of a Sanwa person, you're going to have to check the width of the wood and see if they'll fit, see if you need to get some kind of conversion. But I would just go to any of those arcade stores and make sure to pick up quality stuff. I would absolutely avoid Amazon, eBay, and AliExpress because even ones that might be labeled real Sanwa, how do you know? Whereas arcade shops that do this for a living or you know, as their main hobby or something like that, they're not going to sell knockoffs. They'd get called out immediately. It would destroy their business. You're going to get good stuff from them. So that's definitely what I would start out doing. Um, as for putting a Mars or Mister in it, you know, there's really good options for Mister JAMA now. That Retro Castle one, um, I loved that. I thought that was such a great board. And I, I they're back up for pre-order at, uh, I think Rondo's doing that now. So if you wanted to, to get something now, that would probably be the one that I would recommend. Although I haven't hooked it up to a four-player cab, and I believe Mr. Cade uh, was, a bunch of people had tested that with four-player cabs. But you could reach out to the creator of either and, and confirm. Both would absolutely respond to your message or something like that. Um, I don't mean any disrespect to Mars whatsoever. I'm just simply stating that Mr. is here 
right now today and you could play a bunch of very awesome games on it like the simpsons and stuff like that so you might want to you know if you were kind of itching to get these awesome arcade machines up and running i might just put a mister in there right now in the turtles one wire it up for four players uh, or or even just rewire it for two players and that way uh you could have two six button controls and that way you could end up having whatever game you want on there i don't know it's completely up to you but I would try to get one working and that way you could always kind of have the other one as a project, but at least you have a stand-up arcade that you could really, really enjoy. Um, is there a good source for custom cut acrylic glass and panel overlays? There's a few. Once again, I would check with those arcade forums because uh, some people out there are doing it by request. Other There's others out there that have it pre-cut for each console. Did you want to do it as an original restore of the uh, Ninja Turtles? Did you want to do something like put two different controller things in there? What you're looking to do would really determine what person you're going to want to go to to get that done. So... Yeah, I'm just, I'm very happy for you, Lily, because I know uh, I, that's just going to be an awesome addition to your setup. So very glad that you're able to score both of those. You're in for a lot of work, but it's going to be a lot of fun too. Next up, Retro YPBPR said, they heard me mention recently that I hang all my controllers. Just wondering if you could share what that looks like. Uh, if you're watching on video, that's it. If you're listening on audio, I have one of those cardboard bankers boxes with the top on it, and I cut like a U-shape in the side, and I've dangled all of the controller cables out the side, and then I put the top on. And that way there's no dust that can get in, and all the controller cables hang out so that they kind of stretch and you lose a lot of that crimping that you might find. And while you can absolutely scratch your controllers if you just throw them in the box like this, I take them off the top shelf, I open up the top, I go through them carefully, and you know I don't like throw my controllers in there and then try to yank them out by the cord or anything like that. I treat them respectfully, but I've, I've loved it this way. And being able to take out a controller I haven't used in a year and not have it pull back at me because the uh, the cord is crimped up or something, that's been a pretty big bonus. So it doesn't look the nicest, but... Um, you know, it is what it is. I'm sure there's more talented people out there than me that could make it look like a work of art and not just a box with some shit hanging out the side, but I'll leave that one up to you. Next up, Tim Quillity said, I know this isn't retro gaming related, but they know I'm a big NFL fan, so they were wondering if I'd watched any of the Amazon Prime Thursday night games. On two TVs in their house, the video seems to stutter frequently. They don't know what the correct technical term is, but it seems like the video will pause for a millisecond and then speed through subsequent frames to catch up. They haven't tried watching on a PC, but on two different TVs, one 1080p plasma connected via Fire Stick to Wi-Fi and a 4K set connected via Cat6 with the Amazon installed app, they get the same behavior. So... I am not, uh, I'll get back to that in a second, but I do have NFL Sunday ticket and YouTube TV that I've been using to watch on Sundays, and that same sort of behavior will also happen, and I don't understand what that is. It's like a, a skipping, buffering thing, too. It's not like Judder. It's not like, you know, 24 frames going into 60 or anything like that. Uh, so I'm also really curious, and I reached out to YouTube TV a couple times, and of course I didn't get a response, and, you know, they're not only because it's not feasible to get back to everybody, but they have to know about all this stuff and they have to be choosing the least worst based on the moment. At least I hope. Sometimes there's just a bunch of morons pulling some levers, but I hope there's a bunch of smart people making the decisions. But I don't know what it is either. And the YouTube Sunday ticket is certainly better than it was the past couple of years when DirecTV and AT&T were running it. But it's... Uh, 
there's still a lot of things that they could improve upon. And that was one of them. And it's interesting that you say it was happening on Amazon. Now, for the Thursday night games, I try to, but the truth is, it's I almost can't watch the Sunday games. I've overbooked myself in absolutely every possible way. So by the time I'm done working on a Thursday and the game starts, I might catch a couple minutes of it, but I'm either finishing a project and working or just ready to pass out anyway. So it's, uh, you know, at the end of the season too, there's some Saturday games and stuff like that. Like I barely have time to watch the first set of Sunday games, let alone catch all of them. And I wish I could. I do love football. I love watching. I even like when I watch two teams that I don't have any emotional investment in. I love the game. I think I just, I do. There's no reason to justify it. I just do. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's only a time thing. I really wish I could watch all of them, but I don't think, I've definitely not watched a single Thursday game or Monday game start to finish. But if I have caught any of them, it would just be a few minutes here and there. So uh, I don't remember seeing what you're describing, but I definitely see it with YouTube. So anybody out there, football fans know what we're talking about, or did we just bore a whole bunch of video game nerds to death with football nerd talk? One more from Tom M. They just got an analog duo and wants to know if there's any way to get it to work with their non-pro EverDrives. I'm pretty sure this is a fit issue and you should be able to take it apart to get it to fit in. And if not, you would probably be able to use one of those converters from PC Engine to TurboGrafx or vice versa. That way you could just stick the converter in, assuming the converters aren't too tall to fit, and then put your EverDrive in the other end and just set the EverDrive switch to whichever one matches what's supposed to be on the input. That should work, but honestly, I don't think you're going to hear anything from Analog on that because Chris Tabor has been very blunt about this was supposed to be for original cue cards and original CDs and nothing else, period, which is fair. I mean, it is in the spirit of that project. Um, and also, with, with love and respect, I don't mean any disrespect to you, but that's not um, Crix's problem at all to take a, you know, a discontinued thing to try to fix it to work with one new product that didn't bother to try to get it to work with it in the first place. I unfortunately think you might just be screwed. And getting some of those converters... If you have a whole bunch of original Hue cards that you want to use, that might be a really good investment anyway. But if you just have an EverDrive, then no, you should probably just update to the Pro and kind of go from there. So sorry for the bad news, Tom. And if I'm wrong, please let me know. I would love to be wrong about this, but I think upgrading to the newer EverDrive is probably what you're going to need to do. Next up, Sir Chicken wanted to follow up on last week's question regarding PlayStation 2 S-Video cables. I'm glad you did, Sir Chicken, because I forgot that Insurrection Industries made S-Video cables for the PlayStation. I don't know why I forgot. That was a really stupid thing to forget because I'm a big fan of their cables. But yeah, uh, I will just change my answer from last week and say that if you're in a situation where you know you need quality S-Video cables, then absolutely grab the Insurrection Industries ones for it. However, Sir Chicken wanted to follow up on modding the cheap cables they got. They removed the composite cable and it didn't really benefit anything at all. So they took one cable and desoldered all of the cables from the plug and then soldered a double shielded S-Video cable to it. And that worked. So the issue was the lack of shielding. And I, you know, congrats to you for having the patience to open up a cable and resolder to it. I've done that a bunch of times and I've hated it every single time. So uh, awesome. I'm really glad to hear it's working for you. I'm glad your do-it-yourself solution was a was a win for you. And you know, once again, congrats on having the patience to do that because working on cables, 
sucks. And uh, if any of you want to try that, by all means, go for it. But if you'd like a much easier solution, just grab the link in the description that I have to the, the nice, well-built ones from scratch that don't need modding. Next up, the Remora wants to know if I have a recommendation for a zero-lag HDMI to S-Video converter. That does not exist, unfortunately. Um, now, I think I need to ask why you're looking for that, because I could answer every type of downscaling description to try and help, but it would be a 10-minute answer, and it might not even solve your issue. So the short answer I'm going to give is, no, that doesn't exist. Let me know why you're looking to do that, and I'll follow up next week with you. However, um, a little short thing, the ones that you find on Amazon, AliExpress, eBay, those add lag, and they go down to 480i, but maybe that's all you need to just test something out. Spending 30 bucks on this little device, you plug them in, you try your experiment, and you go, yes, awesome, now I want to continue doing this, but in a zero lag point of view. Or maybe you go, this was cool, but 480i is not going to work, I want 240p instead. Maybe just getting one of those to start is a decent learning experience. I think I have a link for when Lewis and I did that live stream on it, I'll just leave a link to both of those. So you could just start there, and see what happens. But if you have a very specific reason, come back and let me know, because there's a bunch of different ways you could do this. But I need to know what your source resolutions are going to be, what the target resolution is going to be, what the display is. Um, and this might end up costing a lot of money in order to get a whole bunch of parts together to make this happen. So I figured this is the better way to answer it, because I don't want to waste everybody's time talking about uh, five different solutions that might not work for you. So let's start here and just let me know where you want to go. Belmont's looking to retrobrite some consoles they picked up off of eBay that were yellowed and want to know if I have any experience with the cream method, the vapor bright method, or any thoughts on any of those. So I don't have any hands-on experience with the vapor method. I'll leave a link to Tito's video if anybody's wondering what I'm talking about. But if I had something that was important to me that I wanted to retrobrite, that's what I would try next just to see how it worked. The cream method does work, but I always err on the side of caution. So if you find a tutorial online that says cover it in cream, put it in direct sunlight, and leave it for four hours, I would do it for two hours and then wash it off, let it sit overnight, you know, wash it again in the morning, and then see where it's at. Because if you leave it too long, you're going to destroy the plastics. And when I say that, I don't just mean like that experiment I did a couple years ago from that video that everybody hated me for posting that I ended up making unlisted. I actually mean... Uh, I mean microscopically, because so often when you retrobrite a console, it'll look good, and it, but there's some texture to it where you're like, huh, this, you know, it looks perfect, it feels a little different, but whatever, and then a year later, the, crack, or the console's cracked and brittle and falling apart, and it's because the method started to break down the molecular structure of the plastic. That's the same reason you never, ever, ever want to just leave your console in direct sunlight for a long time, like that one video that I hope they eventually took down showed years ago. It was such a bad idea. <laughs> and so I would just always err on the side of caution and do start with less. But I've never done the vapor method, and it seems it seems safer, and it also seems like something that you don't have to worry as much about, because I think you have to leave it overnight. So if you leave it overnight for 12 hours instead of 8 or 14, or I think it's less of a risk, which is why I would want to try that method as well. But I still, for the first time, would would probably practice on something that meant less to me, see how it went, and always wait a day. Like when you take it out, clean it really good, let it sit, 
clean it again. Like, let's say you put it in overnight, take it out in the morning and clean it. Clean it again that night. You know, soft bristled brush, don't scratch the console up. Some dish soap or just some non-abrasive soap. Clean it really well. Blow it out with compressed air. I always tap it out first on my hand and then blow it out with compressed air. And then look the next morning. And another really great way to, to do a comparison is to take before and after shots. If you have any kind of manual camera, just write down your settings and set it to manual mode. Um, if you're using a cell phone, if you could find a free app that has a manual mode, that way it's apples to apples comparison. You're not letting the auto mode on your phone compensate. But I think that's a much bigger um, a much bigger difference. I think uh, a lot of times when I've used RetroBright methods, when I'm done, I'm like, yeah, I guess it's better, but I've always done that before and after picture. And then when you put them side by side, it's like, oh, wow, this is actually a lot better. It's just, it's not perfect, but it's so much better than it was. So it's not that I'm adverse, uh, averse to RetroBright methods. I just, there are so many people on YouTube that just say, hey, look, I did something, so it's definitely safe, right? And it just, it's not always. And I've seen a lot of consoles get destroyed because of RetroBright, and I've seen a lot of consoles get destroyed six months or a year later after the person thought they did a perfect job based on what somebody on YouTube told them to do. So, which is, it's ironic, right, that I'm somebody on YouTube making suggestions for you here, but I feel like my... Uh, my err on the side of caution is probably the best way to go. But I, if it were me, I would try Tito's method uh, next to see how it worked. And who knows, maybe that'll work out. So I'll make sure to leave a link for you. Next up, Aisbin Hardenberg says, Greetings from the land of Limsfjord Porter. By the way, uh, last time I showed this and talked about it, I mentioned it to Martin, and he said I did not pronounce it correctly. However, it was close enough that if I walked into a bar, they would know what I was talking about. So, yay, I could get myself drunk in your country. But anyway, Aisbin has a couple of actual questions, not just beer references. First, they're doing some Dreamcast mods and recently came across someone using a 12-volt Noctua fan wired to the 12-volt pin on the GDMU instead of the regular 5-volt line. That way, they didn't have to remove the 12-volt regulator because the fan drew the current that the GD-ROM used to and the GDMU doesn't. What are my thoughts on this approach? So I need to be very clear that this is a guess. This is I am about to guess and make stuff up Hopefully it's a mildly educated guess, but that seems like it would solve the issue because you're putting proper load on that rather than let it just tie to nothing. So that should solve the issue. And forgetting that that's an option is absolutely something that I would do. However, I have friends that are much smarter than me who I would have thought would have already thought of that and said, you know what, let's just put the fan directly to the power supply instead and go from there. So my question is, why wouldn't they have thought of that? Is it a speed regulated fan? So now it's always just running at the same speed rather than speeding up and slowing down, no longer being connected to the Dreamcast. Is there some kind of fail safe on the Dreamcast that says if your fan's not plugged in, there's something might glitch out. So from a, a just a power point of view, that seems fine. Once again, a guess. But I wonder if there's more to it. So I would look into it a little bit more. But that would be a pretty neat solution if that's all you needed to do. 
Uh, next up, they ended up getting one of those uh, do-it-yourself lag testing kits that uses a Sippy Tang Nan uh, Nano. I think that's the one that Svenergy designed that people were hand-making, but that maxes out at 720p, so uh, you could get good lag test results that are accurate at the max of 720. So the question is, when they found the best 720p settings for the low lag, will those also be the best settings for 1080p and above? So I have a couple of answers to that. In that myth-busting lag uh, video that I did, I showed that in most cases, you're going to have basically within a millisecond or two the same lag at 480p, 720p, and 1080p. Now, I said most cases. I have absolutely hooked up a lag testing device to a TV that had significantly more lag in 480p mode than 1080p. I don't, I think, seven, I saw at least one that acted weird in 720 as well. So that's going to be, <coughs> excuse me, that's going to be something that you just have to kind of test as you go. But if you're talking about um, turning it into, turning the TV into game mode, turning off in motion interpolation, turning off any of the other settings, yes, those would be the same. But you're also going to want to note that many TVs require you to set these per resolution. So what I mean is if you have your lag testing device plugged into HDMI input number one, you've set it to 720p, you've tested it, you've gotten the latency down as low as possible, you unplug it and you plug your game console into HDMI port one, the same port you were just in. If your game console output 720p, you shouldn't have to do anything. But if your console outputs 1080p or higher, you would probably have to go back and change the same settings again, change it to game mode, turn off all of those extra processing, and you might have to do that with every resolution in that input. Some TVs have apply to all input uh, options, but it doesn't often work the same way you would think, um, and so it kind of sucks. I mean, sometimes independent, independent resolution controls are amazing and save you so much time, and you set it once and you never have to worry, but other times it's like with latency, it is a pain. So I would just write down everything that you did and then double check all of the changes when you have another resolution in that input and see what retained and what didn't. Next up, a couple of things from Jason Guffey. They said, I've talked before about HDMI cable ratings and just trying some to see what happens when you don't know their bandwidth, but they're curious how all that even works. For example, if an HDMI cable from 15 years ago has all the same connectors and wires in it, why can't it carry 4K, HDR, 7.1, etc.? So it could be the shielding, it could be the thickness of the wires, it could be the amount of pins that are actually populated. There's quite a lot that goes into HDMI cables, more than you would think. Uh, so it could be a physical issue. It, it could be um, it could be quite a lot of different things. So the ratings aren't BS. They, they absolutely do matter. But that doesn't necessarily mean a cable from 10 years ago won't work in 4K. Or, so that's why I always say it's safe to just try it and see. Um, also, what about couplers? That all depends. Um, if it's a coupler that's literally just pin to pin with nothing else, just you know, a circuit board that connects the two pins, all of the pins are connected. That should be totally fine. You should, and it's same with those manual push button switches. I've only seen them two to one, but those should be the same where it's just routing all of the signals back between them. Some aren't, some share the voltage lines and stuff that they absolutely shouldn't, but the ones that are completely independent should be totally fine. However, I would not use couplers to the ex extend the length of HDMI 2.1 and above. 
So let me word that differently. You have a 720p outputting console and you need to get it 10 feet away, uh, but you only have a six foot cable and a five foot cable. You don't have a 10 foot cable. Yeah, use your coupler. You should be totally fine. You shouldn't worry about it. <clears throat> However, let's say the scenario of you have a 4K 120 signal and you only have two HDMI 2.1 cables that are three feet long and you need to get it six feet away. You could try it. It's not going to hurt anything, but I would not rely on that. I think the higher bandwidth that you're sending through, the more sensitive it's going to be to any of those things. So I, and in fact, to be honest, the moment you start talking about true HDMI 2.1, so 4K 120 or anything like that, I would really spend the money on cables that aren't bottom of the barrel. I've had people tell me, don't spend less than 300 bucks on an HDMI 2.1 cable. I, I think they're full of it. I think that you could absolutely get the cables that I have listed in the Amazon store and it'll work totally fine. I think for long cable runs or stuff with very sensitive equipment or if you're using HDMI logic analyzers at that frequency, yeah, no, that's a completely different story and I understand it. Or one of those scenarios where you've just put in a $100,000 home theater system, don't buy a $20 cable. It was like that reference I made in the, the other video. You know, you don't uh, take a multi-million dollar house and put Ikea furniture in it, right? You got to make sure that it fits the room type of thing. But if you're just talking about, you know, you're one of us, you're a gamer, you got a decent stereo, you got your new console, get a good cable. You don't have to spend hundreds of dollars, but get a good cable, get one that's rated for that speed and go from there. Um, and for everything else, just, you know, unless you know you're using 4K 120, I would try whatever you have and see what happens. If you get speckles, dropouts, or anything else, just unplug it and use something else. So hopefully uh, I was able to point you in the right direction for that. But I'll leave a link to the Amazon store, not just because I'm a cheap shill that's always, post, you know, putting my affiliate links in, but because I actually use every single thing that I have listed in that store. And a lot of them I've used for years. So that's why I'm, I'm very quick to just throw that link out to people. RetroRGB.link forward slash Amazon. I really do use every single thing that's in there. And those HDMI cables that I have, I've been using with the Tink 4K. I've been using with you know the OLED TV I have back there. So uh, it's definitely recommendations that have worked for me for quite some time. Well, that's it for this time. If you have any question at all, please just ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post, because the way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, as you saw here today, I just like scrolling through in real time and answering them as if we were hanging out, having a beer or a coffee somewhere together. And just to note, the questions are very often only on Patreon, just because that's where most people support. But anywhere you support, you could hang out with the Q&As. This is really just meant as a thank you to all of you, because without all of you, none of this stuff would happen. So thank you all so much. Uh, it's always fun doing these as well. And I will see you all next week.